Good evening, trustees, staff, and guests. Um, the Alameda Health System Audit and Compliance Committee of the Board is now in session. It's March 15, 2023. Uh, General Counsel, may I call for the roll, please? Thank you, Chair Banerjee. Uh, Trustee Alvarez-Gassion. Here. Uh, Trustee Banerjee. Here. Uh, Trustee Friedman and Trustee Splendoria are running a little bit late. Uh, are there any requests for public comments? There are no public comments. All right. So we can move on to the first item. Oh, this is um, the, let's keep the consent agenda for later because we need action on that. But should we move to item, the, Item number B, which is the proactive privacy monitoring discussion item. And that would be Marilyn Boston, our Chief Compliance. Hi, how are you? Very well, thank you. It's so nice to have a face to the name, Ms. Boston. Mm -hmm. I, I what, used to be on audit and compliance a few oh, years wonderful. ago. And then, you know, I chaired it and then have moved, moved on to some of the other committees. So I'm glad to be back again. Well, great having you here. Um, so should I share my screen or? Yes, please. Okay. One minute. Come on. Can you see my screen? Yes. Okay. Trying. Need you to move up so I can. All right. Sorry that it's showing in this position, but. Um, for whatever reason, I cannot get this to move. Can you go to the slideshow format? I'm trying to. <laughs> it's all right. Wait one minute. There is something. Wait, I'm going to have to stop share for just one moment. Sure. So Marilyn, do you want me to do it? I can try. <laughs> Let me just put it on slideshow now. There was something blocking, so I wasn't able to get it in this. Okay, now. All right. Hi, Sorry to be late. Accident. Want me to uh, try, Marilyn? We just got started. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Just a second. We could uh, do the minutes if you'd like, uh, Chair oh. Friedman and Banerjee, while we wait for Marilyn. Yeah, sure. So I'm always glad when somebody's later than me. <laughs> 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 um, 
So let's call the meeting to order. It's in order. Uh, oh, it's already. Yeah, yes. So we, okay. we just have one item on the consent agenda, which is approval of the minutes from the November 8th meeting. I move approval. Okay. All in favor? Okay. It's roll call, uh, Chair Freeman. Oh, um, that's right. Because uh, yeah. Trustee Splendorio is going to be calling in. Oh, so gotcha. all of it has to be roll call. So, uh, Chair Freeman? Aye. Chair Banerjee? Aye. Trustee Obligacion? Aye. The motion carries. Okay. Thank you. Is there any public comment on non agenda items, or you already did that? We did that. So, where are we? Uh, on item B, first first one on CEO report. Uh, the B is uh, privacy proactive privacy monitoring by Miss Boston. Okay, we're ready. Okay. All right. Thank you. All right, Akimi. Um, you can go to the next slide. So what we wanted to do was just give you guys an update on some work that we're doing. Um, we're working with a company called ProTennis, and this is to implement um, a proactive privacy monitoring um, solution for our organization. And I'll get into a little of the details, but as an overview, basically right now, we are reacting um, when we receive notification of potential privacy breaches. So if a patient contacts us and say that they they think someone has gone into their record or if staff called us, you know, to notify us of a suspected privacy breach, then we react to those notifications and begin investigations as a result of those. But what we don't have in place right now is um, a way in which we can proactively monitor access into our electronic health record, which is primarily our EPIC system. And this would help with this. And one of the other reasons that we're doing this there, it's certainly it's to protect, you know, all of our patients' um, privacy and their information in their health record. But we also have heard from our employees that many of them are reluctant to have their services performed at our um, health system because of fear that their medical records will be you know, assessed inappropriately by their coworkers. And so this will definitely give us a way to proactively monitor all of those accesses. So basically the goal of this project is to audit and document up to 100% of patient accesses across our system. And this will help to reduce uh, privacy risk to the organization. It'll streamline uh, the process that we currently have because we do have um, quite a few manual processes that we're doing. So it'll help with, with workflows and it'll be electronic. It'll also centralize many of the different systems that we're currently using into one place so that when we're investigating these, we're not having to go into several systems to look for inappropriate access. And then uh, we'll be able to leverage the data that we obtained from this to not only do investigations, but also to look for opportunities where we can train our staff, um, we can spot you know, different things that are happening, we could work with leadership and basically just reduce um, inappropriate access into the system and it'll also help to reduce you know, um, 
the actions of those who repeat the, the offenses. The next slide, please. And I basically spoke about this briefly that our current state is one where we're reacting. And the limited um, proactivity that we have right now is with our break the glass, but we actually are not using our uh, break the glass to its full potential and in the manner that it should be utilized. We're using it to try and proactively monitor, but as a result, we're having a large, large reports that we really can't gather the information that we really need. We get a lot of false positives from those. And so this will really help with that. And we'll also be able to scale. Um, right now, scalability is very limited to um, detect inappropriate access. The next slide. And so what's the impact to Alameda Health System and our patients? Basically, when we have breaches, there's a loss in patients' trust. You know, um, they stop trusting us to protect their privacy. When there are large breaches, we risk um, negative public image as a result um, because we have to report it to the media. Um, there are increased government penalties, you know, when we have breaches, and then there are potential sanctions to our uh, health system. The next slide. And so just some of the benefits. Uh, this Excuse me. Sure. Uh, Chair Banerjee has a question. I'm sorry, I didn't see your hand. No, that's all right. Two things. One is you said that the manual um, BTG break the glass uh, gives you false positives. And when I say that is because right now we have break the glass on almost all of our staff. And oftentimes when we get the reports and we're going through those reports, the access was appropriate because the staff members were actually being seen. And of course it's workforce members that are entering you know, into those records. And certainly they have to put a note in there, but we're having to manually go through those reports you know, um, and investigate a lot of things that we shouldn't have to because it's actually appropriate access. Thank you, that's really helpful. And when you said you have to report to the media, that is not, is that something that is a requirement or I know- When there is a breach that involves more than 500 patients, um, then we are obligated to report that to the media. We have to report it to the patients. We have to report it um, to the Office of um, Civil Rights, to California Department of Public Health and we have to report it to the media. Thank you. Wow. Sure. Um, with the artificial intelligence uh, platform, up to 95, there's a, up to a 95% accuracy rate that's identified be between what's proper and improper access. So um, of course, with the automation, it would save time and resources. Um, just it's a consistent analysis of the data results. We'll be able to scale it across the system and then our workflows would be more streamlined and we can definitely decrease and probably in many instances, eliminate much of the manual processes that we're doing. The next slide. 
this just gets into, you know, the Pretendus platform. And again, um, it'll be, we will be able to configure it to Alameda Health System's specific needs. Um, our compliance department will be able to analyze numerous sources of clinical workflow, human resources, and other data that's relevant to privacy investigations. So we'll pull in the systems that we need, you know, in order to, to get the, the data that we need to, you know, to make the system work appropriately. And it automatically, um, basically detects, you know, when uses are, when use is going into, um, when users access patients, you know, information. And just, you know, to kind of summarize this platform, how, how it works, one of the things that we're having to do is basically pull in HR information, uh, information from Lawson, because we need our employees' addresses and date of births. Those are two things that uh, are really kind of necessary because what the system looks for is one is inappropriate access, for instance, into um, like your family member records, right? Or people who live in the same household. They look for inappropriate access of neighbors. So people who live in your neighborhood or in the same apartment building. And so, then there are cases where you may have um, inappropriate access, but you have common names. And when you have, you know, a bunch of John Smiths, the date of birth will help to isolate to the appropriate um, person. The other things, uh, forms of um, things that it really looks for is people who work in the same departments. So if someone is uh, inappropriately accessing a coworker's uh, medical record, uh, it'll look for things like if if an employee works specifically in pediatrics, but they're accessing the record of someone that's an adult, that would be a hit that would cause, you know, an investigation. So it's those types of things that it's looking for and basically notifying our department of. And then what we do is we go in and we research those. And there's, again, there are times when those accesses may be appropriate. And we try and find that out before we even contact the employee or go through any type of investigation. We're really proactively looking at those things. So the next, um, the next slide, uh, we can skip through these. Um, because this really is getting more into how the platform works. Back up one, please. I just want them to see who all is involved in this project. So our compliance team, we will be working with um, a project manager on this. Um, IT and the uh, business intelligence team is also helping HR and our uh, organizational uh, learning uh, team. They're also helping. So we have, you know, different partners that's helping with this. The next slide. All right, we have a question. Sure. So, uh, question on the uh, project manager, business intelligence team. Are these uh, permanent uh, worker here or is it like they're working with a vendor? No, this is coming, we're going through our smart team. Um, and so we, this is internal. Okay. Thank you. From our internal uh, project management department. Yes. Thanks. You're welcome. The next slide. 
And um, this is our implementation milestones. Um, right now, we are going through um, the SMART team and they're reviewing it. We've, we have a lot of the work that you know has been underway, but one of the things that we're waiting for right now is because of the requirement of um, employees' addresses and their date of birth, um, we're working with HR so that they can work with our labor partners um, they need to notify them and give them an opportunity to provide feedback. And so that's going to take about 30 days um, for that to happen. And so once that comes back and we make you know, decisions about moving forward, then we'll be able to move you know, with our timeline because it'll take about 12 weeks to implement. The next slide. Actually, that's the end. Of that's it. Yeah. Okay, any questions? Much needed. Yeah. Yeah. I just have a question. Yeah, please. So you sure. mentioned that you, uh, you know, the, the feedback and input with the labor partners. Do you see any challenges uh, working with them on this? Because it seems like it's really good to, to move this program. We have Lorna on. On the phone, and Lorna is our uh, chief human resource officer. Lorna, could you speak to that, please? I'm excuse me, sure. Can you repeat the question? Are there any challenges um, moving this? Uh, and uh, it was mentioned that you're going to gather feedback input with the labor <clears throat> partners. Do you anticipate any challenges to move forward on this implementation? Yes, I do. And the reason being is um, uh, most of the employees um, have a very high expectation of privacy and mm -hmm. they don't allow us to use their information um, or there's some distrust of using information. But I think that um, uh, Marilyn and um, Bonnie and uh, Kemi have um, really made a great case for the reasoning why. And one of them is to protect their own data, right? And their own family members' data. And so when we do meet with the union, we plan on, you know, making sure they understand the full ramification of, of why we really need to have this software. It's pretty common in the industry and they really need this data and the why. So um, we do anticipate getting to an agreement, but I do think it will, it may take one or two meetings to get there. So that's kind of why we always ask for 30 days and it may be a little bit longer, but of course we'll keep Marilyn and her team appraised of any um, <laughs> delays. But uh, yeah, they, they routinely do not want us to release their information. <laughs> I, I think that uh, we need to point out the recent uh, incursions in the city of Oakland, which is still struggling. And also St. Rose Hospital was subject to ransomware. It took them uh, over a month to deal with that. And the city of Oakland has been going on for a long time. So right in our backyard, we have examples of why this is so necessary. Ajaz has his hand up. Hi, yeah. Uh, so this is Ajaz Ali, the Chief Information Security Officer. Um, I also just wanted to highlight a very recent incident. I just. Um, it just occurred this morning at uh, Contra Costa County Regional Hospital in Martinez, California, where a contractor had gone in um, to uh, the patient records uh, there at Contra Costa County 
and uh, stole a patient's um, information about the patient having uh, a sexually transmitted disease, and then went on Facebook, created a fake profile of that victim, and then uh, posted the, the medical information uh, of that sexual transmitted disease, and then uh, tagged all of the, that person's friends. Now, like they don't really understand why the contractor of that hospital singled out this one um, patient, but they believe that it's um, someone that the that the um, that the contractor knew and probably disliked. So, wow, wow. Thanks for sharing that horror story. Yeah. <laughs> I have one more question. Take sure. as many questions okay. as you want. We're, we're way ahead of time. Ms. <laughs> Marshall, <laughs> I wanted to know, like, how are the internal audit findings reported? Like, when you find something like that, how does, like, through, uh, especially if it, in this case, it is to protect or, you know, um, save our uh, staff as well as our patient data and things like, but if there are other audit findings that you're doing through your internal audit processes, usually how do you share the findings? Oh, um, there are different ways. And actually we will be doing a report on some of our internal audits that we have done for this quarter a little bit later in the presentation. Um, but uh, we do share the findings here at this committee we also share our findings at our, um, our system compliance committee. Um, and so, and that's all of our leader, our executive leaders are part of that and key leaders from other departments participate in that meeting. And it's one that we just reestablished last quarter. And so those findings are also shared there. And then depending on which areas the audits are done in, we certainly share those findings with the leaders of those departments because we require corrective action plans um, to be put in place. And then we monitor those correction corrective action plans to make sure that they're not just band-aids, but they're actually addressing the root cause of the problems. Thank you. You're welcome. Keep rolling, Marilyn and team. Okay. Okay, I'll, I'll bring up the, um, the research one. So one second. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So another project that we're engaged in is with what we call our IRB manager. It's the Institutional uh, Review Board. Um, and it's basically around research. The next slide, Akemi. So this is basically the report um, from some of, of the protocols, the applications and things that have come through. So in our first quarter, we had a total of, well, this was the first quarter, July through September, there were 80, a total of, looks like 89 active studies. We had one expedited review, two that were exempt, 
four modifications, three annual reviews, seven expedited annual check-ins and three closures. The second quarter, um, you can see the numbers here. There was one initial review, four expedited reviews, four exempt, six modifications, three annual renewals, four expedited check-ins, 15 closures, and a total of 83 active studies at the end of that quarter. And then for quarter three, January through March 31st of this year, um, we've had one expedited review, two exempt, five modifications, one annual renewal, two expedited uh, annual check-ins, 14 closures, and a total of 71 uh, active studies. Um, Akimi, can you bring up the one um, for the IRB manager? Yeah. Oh. Okay, great, thank you. And so this is another um, software that we are in the process of implementing so the IRB manager was actually acquired back in 2018, and this is when this work um, was done by our medical staff office. And during that process, there were a lot of um, transitions that happened, and this work was um, transitioned from the medical staff to the um, internal audit and compliance department. The, the IRB manager, the software had been purchased, but it had not been customized and um, implemented. And so the build for it was completed in January of this year. Um, it's been tested and that was completed in February. But while we were going through this process and we got to the place where we were getting ready for implementation, it was discovered that this uh, particular piece of software, when it was initially purchased, did not go through the proper contracting requirements, nor was the security risk assessment done. So I had them, you know, put this on hold so that we can, you know, get those things completed. And we are working through that, you know, right now. We're also taking this through the SMART committee as well. But they agree that this does look like it's something that will be extremely beneficial. What this, right now, all of the um, protocols that the applications for protocols that are submitted by our physicians that that are doing research, those things are, are it's a manual process right now. The IRB manager will um, bring this into a web-based system and all of those submissions will go through that process. It will definitely streamline it for our physicians and for the entire team that's working on um, these research studies. And so, the type of submissions that will go through this system will be new projects, the modifications, the annual renewals, closure requests, anytime there are protocol deviations, adverse events can be reported through here. So all of these things will, uh, we will be able to do through this system. So we're really excited about getting it you know, uh, implemented. The next slide. If I, Marilyn, may I ask a question? This Absolutely. is James. Sure. I'm just, I'm just curious, and if you said it and I missed it, I apologize. Do you have any idea, knowing that you've been here eight months, but do you know Six. why it was, took from 2018 <laughs> until 2023 to, to build it after the acquisition? Yeah. 
So Akemi could probably speak to this a little bit better than I. I know it was acquired in 2018 while it was with the medical staff team. It was transferred over to um, internal audit and compliance, I believe, about two years ago. Yes. And it wasn't until it came into that team that some work began to happen on it. And it wasn't completed until January of this year. Uh, yeah, so the reason why it takes two years for us is um, it, we have to build it from ground up. And so, you know, in the IRB, um, there's all these different processes um, that must be followed. So we had to create it for each step. And then also because um, there's a contracting part um, that went through how many changes. And so we are, um, that's why we're at <laughs> February that we are, we were able to complete um, the build and the testing. Uh, on it. So right now we're just making little tweaks here and there um, because of, uh, you know, well, um, Marilyn will speak to that, but uh, we are going to um, partner with another um, entity. And so we had to also put in some changes into the IRB a manager. Thank you. Chair, may I ask a follow-up question? Of course. And thank you, Akemi. My question wasn't really about the two years that I are, that your program has had it, that compliance had it. It's the three years that sound like they were dormant prior to that. So if we acquired it as an organization in 2018, what was the, if you know, what was the reasoning for why it was dormant for three years before it came to compliance? Wow. And I know you said it was with the medical group. Well, what, what? It's with the medical staff office. Yeah, so medical staff, the person that they had uh, working on it really wasn't um, working with the um, project manager that's part of IRB manager on a regular basis. So if you're not working, partnering with that person, it's going to take time to build it. So when it came to compliance, we met with the person two times a week in order to get up to speed. And, um, but like I mentioned, there are so many parts to IRB, like Marilyn said, you have to build the, um, the expedited, the exempt, the um, waivers, the um, informed consent, all those parts need to be built within the IRB manager. So can we assume that in the four and a half years since we acquired it, that that software has been updated yes. uh, more than once, right? Yes. Um, so it's already been um, updated. There might be, if there are changes with the uh, FDA rules, we might have to go back and make some changes um, because it's a pretty much a click-click and -click that when investigator um, puts a submission in, it has to follow these rules. So there's checks um, in order to know which direction is gonna go um, for the protocol in order for IRB to approve it. Thank you. 
You know, James, I, you know, I certainly um, am, am right there with you with the amount of time that it took to get this implemented, especially since, you know, there was a cost associated with it. Um, but I am happy to say, you know, um, Amanda and Akemi have done a really good job in I've gone through the system and the bill that's in there. It's very detailed. Uh, it is definitely going to streamline this process. And it's also setting setting us up so that if we want to expand, you know, um, our research with our organization, we'll be in a position to do that. Thank you, Marilyn. And, and I thank you, Kimmy. I appreciate both of your comments. And really what I was driving at is I feel an obligation. We're the stewards of scarce resources. And so to have made an investment in this in 2018 and for it to have been fallow for that long is just, I, I'm concerned about that. And I just want the trustees to know that that's certainly not my expectation of how things will happen in the future. Yeah. Gotcha. Thank you, James. And from the risk, not proper risk assessment or any of those other processes in the contracting process, not just after we got it, but to get it right. and to execute that. Yeah. Good point. Go ahead. The question I have, uh, you have the virtual training session to be determined. And at the bottom you have, you know, training session that will be held for all AHS staff. I mean, is there a target date when we're gonna roll it out? And because you have a no go live in training schedule pending SRA, uh, you know. Yes. We did originally have an implementation date scheduled until, um, you know, we discovered that there were issues, you know, with the contract that needed to be redone and that the um, security risk assessment needed to be done. And so the virtual training sessions and the go live has been put on hold until those things are finalized. And then we will, you know, update this. So, um, just if I can interject, we have done some sessions at least with the um, the co-chairs of the RRB already, and we are going to do it um, do a, one with the committee members, um, so they have um, a picture of that process. But right now, um, like Marilyn was uh, saying we are uh, working through the process with the contract team. And so we're hoping that, um, I asked them to, if they could expedite it. And, um, you know, as far as the compliance team, we're hoping that we can um, start um, rolling out the sessions in maybe late May or June. And can you explain what SRA stands for? Security risk assessment. Thank you. You're welcome. This did not come to the full board for approval. It must be below the threshold. The IRB manager software um, is uh, under a million. Oh, yeah. Yes. It was purchased back in 17. It was purchased back into, yeah, in, in 2017. And it, yeah, it's really not that that um, expensive. I believe we're paying about eleven thousand five hundred per month for it. Um, actually, it's it's um, it's it's not a month; it's annual. Oh, so annual. 
Yeah. And do we only pay that once it went live or did we pay no. it all since? No, we've been paying it every year. Right. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Next that slide. Is this item? Oh, we got. This is just one other thing that we wanted that's associated with this. And this is another contract that we're working on with Bay Area Tumor Institute. Um, and we're doing this because we, we had a contract with them, I believe back in 2006. Um, but the part that's, that's really helpful with this, they are independent, they're a nonprofit organization and they're basically dedicated to cancer research and they are a part of the National Cancer Institute and uh, the Community of Oncology Research. They have uh, a program there. And there are a lot of things that will benefit us if we partner with them. Um, there's grant funding that's available. Um, there are, as you see here, there are a lot of affiliated hospitals across the Bay Area, Contra Costa Regional Medical Center, um, Bay Area Breast Surgeons, Epic Care in Emeryville, USCF, um, Children's Hospital in Oakland, um, Epic Care uh, in Walnut Creek, and then Epic Care in Dublin. And there, there are an estimated about 40 protocols currently approved and are available through BATI. And so what we're hoping is that, you know, once we are a part of this, we will really be able to, you know, make this available to our patients. And so um, they have seven research bases and what they do is develop and coordinate clinical trials um, for cancer care research and then with Bay Area Tumor Institute, there are 32 uh, community sites plus 14 minority underserved community sites. And we think this is definitely appropriate for, you know, uh, for Alameda Health System to partner with and for our community. Um, and then there's also, as far as, you know, independent practices, there are over a thousand of them at diverse community-based hospitals and private practices. Um, go to the next slide, uh, Akemi. The next slide. Oh, a oh, question I first. Go oh. ahead, Kenny. So um, we have there. Uh, AHS has a community cancer collaborative, so that is part of our one of those places. Few service lines where there's a Alameda patient and community partners coming together to see like how can we reduce. Uh, unequal inequities in the cancer, the entire spectrum of cancer care. So I think a good thing would be also to, at some point in time, share this information with our community, with the collaborative partners, so that they feel like, ooh, uh, that they were also part of uh, this decision and what, you know, how this will benefit the patients because they are our ambassadors in the community. Mm -hmm. our patient navigators, our um, survivors, and other folks on the cancer collaborative. Okay. Yeah, that's one. Yeah, they gave a really good presentation at our uh, board meeting last week. So that, uh, I did see that. Yeah, that's the one of the intents. Uh, we're hoping that um, we can uh, reach um, out to the um, Alameda County you know, community 
that we offer this, meaning that through the body, that there are clinical trials for um, uh, for people who have um, cancer so they can come to AHS and make it much easier for people to access, um, you know, potential um, research that may help them. And part of the collaborative's work is also to kind of work on building trust with the community because often with, um, you know, our black and brown communities, there's distrust about how they've been used for clinical trials. And so yes. this is a place where if we want input, there's, you know, uh, space for us to be building trust, earning trust, and also sharing some of this information and hearing what some of the barriers might be from the community so that even for the researchers, they get an, a, a sense of like, well, where is the hesitancy? Where are the barriers? Right. Thank you. Uh, next slide. And so this is just giving, you know, some of the benefits of our partnering with them. Uh, again, it would provide opportunities to participate um, in the sponsored clinical trials. Uh, it'll provide an opportunity for our patients to participate, you know, in some of the advanced uh, therapies and treatments. Um, we can gain um, trial accruals towards getting accreditation with um the American College of Surgeons and the Commission of Cancer Accreditation. Um, again, there are university, university level research opportunities, national recognition. So there are a lot of things, but, and then we have the potential again to expand uh, the research activities across our system. Thank you. Are we ready to move on to uh, the cybersecurity update with EJAS? Yes. All right, take it away. You're on mute. All right. Um, you go. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, Ijaz Ali, your Chief Information Security Officer. And I will share my screen. Let's do that. And then let's do this. All right, um, can everyone see my screen? Yes. Yeah, we can. All right. Okay, let's get my microphone. All right. Um, so the very last of the AHS uh, legacy in which we had to tackle was identity. So we uh, started tackling the um, identity um, of our, our user accounts at Alameda Health in the last quarter. And what we found out as this being our first time doing this type of assessment is we had um, too many privileged users, almost about, um, almost all of our users had some sort of privileged access. Uh, that we've been able to reduce that number down to about 98%. Uh, and, and the 2% that's remaining is actually the IT folk who actually need um, the privileged access. So this is the server team and the desktop team and the network team, and they need the privileged access to uh, create, um, you know, their um, their assets for server team to create their assets for the desktop team to create desktops and to upload and to upload applications. Um, so um, we're able to fix that. 
we also had uh, too, main, too many domain administrators. And what domain administrators are, are users who are able to make uh, significant changes onto the, onto the network. And um, the I, ideal number is to get that um, to somewhere around less than 10 in which we, we were able we were able to do that. So we reduced that number down um, by 82% and the, um, do, and the domain administrators are just the, um, the server team who uh, control and manage the domain and then a, a couple people on the on the desktop team. And then um, we also had a lot of users with a common, or a compromised password. And um, the way that we manage this is that we sent out uh, multiple emails out to all these users to change their passwords. And if they didn't, um, and if they didn't do it by the time frame, then um, we had asked, uh, so we had forced uh, their passwords to be uh, compromised. Um, so that number has gone down uh by about 41 percent so 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 we still do have a significant number and we're going to um actually fix this by increasing the complexity and the requirements of our passport policy so currently it's uh eight characters um we're we're going to increase this to 10 and and we believe those two additional characters um is going to reduce the amount of um, common and compromised passwords on our on our network. Now, um, when I when I say common or compromised, um, what I mean is is that these passwords are um, are in the dark web somewhere, right? So th they could be part of like a Facebook breach or um, you know an Experian breach. You know, Facebook had like five hundred thirty four million passwords that were compromised so it, it's it, it is possible that you know one of those passwords are being used at, at alameda health and, and so that's what i mean by common or compromised password um but our biggest win is that we've <clears throat> we've eliminated the privileged users with the compromised password so um, as, as I stated earlier, the privileged users that we currently have are just the IT folk. And none of them have a password that's on the dark web or a password that's used by a bad actor to try to compromise uh, the network. And, um, and uh, for the future, we actually have um, an identity and access management um, in which we're going to implement uh, this upcoming fiscal year. And this will give us uh, better control of everyone's access and, uh, and allow us to um, really make sure that, you know, um, a person who needs access to, um, I'm just gonna use Epic as an example, will we'll have access to, to Epic. And someone who doesn't need access to Epic, like, like myself, Right, um, won't have access to Epic. So let's just say that I do. Um, then my my access would be would be cut off because I don't need it. 
Um, and then to uh, going on to assets. So we have about 4,500 assets on our network, uh, which about 97% of it is in compliance. Now, um, I believe the uh, industry benchmark is 95. So we're above the uh, uh, healthcare industry benchmark, uh, but uh, we would like to get to 100%. Uh, that's where that we're that we're striving. Uh, we do have some legacy applications um, in which uh, we have asked uh, the various departments to upgrade so we can uh, get out of uh, having these uh, <laughs> legacy legacy op operational Level systems. Three trauma alert. EPA. And um, something else in which Level that- Level three trauma alert. EPA, 10 minutes. Uh, what's the definition of assets here? So uh, these are um, desktops, uh, workstation on wheels, servers, uh, laptops. So um, uh, end user um, end user devices. Okay, thank you. Yeah. And then um, something else in in which we started to uh, monitor uh, in in the last quarter was our connected medical devices. So um, prior to this, we had um, no idea of how many connected medical devices in which we had, right? The, um, the belief was we had around uh, five to 10,000. It turns out we only have about 1,600, right? Um, so we're, we're now monitoring those network devices to ensure that they are being patched regularly to make sure that um, there's no there's no ransomware or no infections on those devices because a lot of these devices touch patients right and so um, we want to protect these devices in order to protect our patients uh, so in terms of our vulnerability data now um, the the low that you see here, uh, it's not, uh, it's there's no exploits for for these um, vulnerabilities. So about seven hundred and fifty two thousand, there's no exploits, um, meaning that they th that they're not true vulnerabilities. That there's zero risk associated with those seven hundred fifty two thousand. So uh, what we're doing is we're focusing on the other three, the critical, the high, and the medium. Uh, they've, they've gone down uh, since the last quarter, and that's with us um, implementing a new uh, patch management, a vulnerability management program. Um, but but uh, next fiscal year, we're actually looking at an endpoint management um, program. So we'll be able to get these numbers uh, a lot lower. Um, yeah, so we'll be able to get these numbers uh, a, lot, a lot lower. All right, in terms of uh, incidents, so uh, the, the low incidents are potentially unwanted programs. Uh, so these are our users going on sites uh, like CNN or maybe um, ESPN, 
right? And, and then uh, there are ads that run on the background. Some of those ads um, can be can be malicious in nature. So uh, our our security tools pick it up. And then, so when somebody goes and they they click on one of those ads, uh, it's the, the potentially unwanted program uh, installs onto the computer, and then we're able to go in right away and um, remove that program from um, from running. the The medium and highs now those are um, malware, so it, it would be a a user uh, most likely clicking, clicking on malware from an email. And then um, uh, we get the alert and then the team will go in there and then they'll, uh, they'll look for the email, they'll look for the click and then they'll go back uh, on the logs about 30 minutes to ensure that nothing happened before. And then they'll watch the logs for about 30 minutes to about an hour later just to ensure that it's been completely removed. Um, so the and the average um, minutes to resolve is uh, definitely below um, industry standards. Now, um, with with our uh, six highs that we had this quarter, um, it's we spend about seventy minutes. Uh, resolving this now uh last year we probably would have spent about 70 days um resolving this so uh we've gotten um a lot better and a lot quicker and our our tools are learning uh the environment every single day and these numbers will um will tend to decrease and then uh for email security um yeah, I think I mentioned this uh, the last time I got up here. Um, October and November, uh, the email threats were high because bad actors needed to pay for Christmas gifts. Right? And then uh, December, they went back low as they were celebrating Christmas with their, with their family. So, you know, um, yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, we're we're back to uh, normal normal numbers now. Um, we'll just wait for the, the next holiday season for bad actors to pick up their uh, phishing and spam emails. Great. Yep. And uh, that's it. Does anyone have any questions? Great. Um, do we provide a training for staff? Um, in terms of email security, because there's a lot of things like those spam and the phishing. So is there trainings that maybe they could have like a video that they could watch and don't click this, because this could cause this, right? And I know there's some type of training that's out there. Yes, yeah, so currently we do, um, uh, it's part of the compliance training on, uh, with Elsevier. Uh, but we actually are looking at a security and awareness tool, uh, something like Know Before, uh, to actually do phishing campaigns. So, um, so the organization will get phishing emails coming from me, right? And then uh, if a user clicks on it, uh, then um, yeah, then they'll probably will be associated training, which will probably will have to work with uh, Lorna.
and uh, HR list. Thank you. Any other questions? Thank you, EJS. Great presentation. Let's move on to item E discussion of internal audit compliance reporting summary. Marilyn and Akini. Okay, well, let me um, go to presentation. All right. So um, this is basically a summary of, uh, you know, presentation of the different things that have transpired over the last quarter. And the first audit here is our 340B audits for the second quarter. So on our hospital claims for Medicare and our commercial, there were a total of uh, 5,517 and there were zero errors. For our um, hospital claims for Medi-Cal and managed care, there were 38,731, and again, no errors. For ambulatory freestanding um, for Medicare and commercial, there were 166 claims, no errors. But for our ambulatory freestanding uh, clinics for Medi-Cal and, med and our uh, managed care, uh, we had um, 98 errors out of 1,886 claims for a 5.2% error rate. And so with this one, basically right now, as far as correcting this, uh, the PP um, physician billing team, they're correcting claims. So they're adding the UD modifier. That modifier should have been... Um, you know, attached to all of those claims. And right now the Epic IT team is investigating to find out why that modifier was not attached. Um, as you can see in all the others, there was, you know, we had no errors. So the Epic bill, the way it was set up was functioning the way it should. But for some reason on this last one, it, it was not. So we are looking into that. What does UD stand for? It's a modifier that goes um, onto these to let it to let them know that it was a part of a 340B um, drug, and that's how uh, we get paid for those. But what does UD stand for? I don't remember offhand what the actual. Um, okay, no is. problem. It, it's just that we probably need a glossary with all the acronyms. Uh, and there's a long list of them. Yeah, that's for sure. I don't know if it stands oh, for Oh, there anything. it is. Kimmy just looked it up right quick. Yeah, so you can see it, it's it's actually... Um, There's not always... Yeah, it's not always, but it, um, in, for Medi-Cal, they require the UD modifier to indicate that that drug is um, part of the... Of, um, B. And so there are um, essentially different modifiers for different reasons, and payers are the one who understand what those modifiers are. And so 
<clears throat> UD modifier can be used not just for 340B, but for other um, types of services. But of course, what it was saying here is that for the um, professional fee side, the um, you attach that UD modifier to what's called the evaluation management service. That um, and so, you know, that's what it is. But the UD essentially is used for three point B for drugs as directed. Okay, and I remember in the past, like maybe two, three years ago. Uh, no, it, it had to be more than that. We got dinged for exactly this. There was like an internal control and there were like all kinds of <clears throat> UD modifiers missing. And so does the three, and I, you said that this is beyond the 340B only, this is in the ambulatory, other settings outside of the QHC, right? Yeah. Is, so, is there the 340B steering committee still active? Yes, it will, it will be active um, ongoing. And we do um, meet on a quarterly basis. Um, so there is um, an audit that is done um, on these, this side that we're talking about, but also the pharmacy does an audit as well. And so that uh, review is presented to the um, 340B steering um, committee, which includes um, the IS group plus the revenue cycle group. Um, and like you were talking about um, prior, um, we had to, um, uh, what's it, give money back and it was in the millions. Um, and so we had to settle um, with, um, when I say settle, a refund to the um, drug manufacturers and um, so that was completed. Plus we had to report that to the state. And, um, and so, you know, that is pretty much at the end. Um, there are some reviews that the state is um, reviewing and we have outside counsel, but it's pretty much at the end of that um, kind of, uh, what do you call, review because the um, the state did accept um, all of our um, corrective action plans that we did. And we um, also had no one through HRSA, which is a federal, and there was no um, corrective action on their side. So at this point, we are, um, we are good. And that's why I think doing these quarterly reviews, that helps us because we can identify any issues um, promptly. Thank you. Go ahead, please. So um, on the UD modifier, so it's not, I'm just trying to understand, it's not a human error, but it may be caused by, and that's, what, that's why the IT is investigating because it could be possibly where something that on a technology error that, that it's important to add this UD, UD modifier? Yeah, so when um, that occurred, we had to um, review the Epic logic that was set up because there are different rules based on the payer. So Medicare has one rule and, um, and Medicare has a different rule. 
And so what we did um, is that we set the guidelines up with the um, epic, I don't know what you call that team, analysts, and we um, had them do a test and to show us on a claim what it looks like to ensure that they, it's set up correctly. And then they also did a test afterwards, meaning that they submitted it and, we, and then we looked at it. Um, so that logic has been set up, but like this here, we wanted to investigate if you, we set up the logic, so why is that there was a 5.2%? Um, and so that's why they're investigating that. Yeah, because, you know, if you look at this, there were 1,886 claims, mm -hmm. but of those 800, 1,886, 98 of them did not have that modifier appended to those claims. And so if the logic is set up where it's capturing it on all of those others, what is there something different that caused these 98 to fall out? And so that's what we're having them investigate. Thank you for explaining that and great work on the top three, zero, can't get any better than that. So uh, great work. Thank you. The next yeah, slide. I mean, yeah, great work. And, you know, I mean, it's good that, you know, you're doing the audit, you're, you find some errors and it happens, right? Especially in the technology world. And so, but at least bottom line is that you are making the corrections. So I just want to commend you for you guys for doing this. So thank you. Thank you. So these are internal audits that are, you know, uh, in progress and are at various stages. The first one here was for uh, computed radiology. And this one, again, was dealing with the modifier. It's the FY modifier that's supposed to be appended to these claims. And so what we found was that from 2018 through 2022 calendar years, um, those are the years that were audited and there were 24,000 uh, claims that were our items that were missing the FY modifier. And the reason this is significant is because um, for this particular type of uh, image imaging, Medicare pays, they reduces the fee by I believe it's 7%. Um, and so by not appending this modifier means that we have been overpaid on those claims. So right now revenue cycle, um, um, there's a correction action plan that's in place and they're reviewing these to determine uh, how much we're gonna have to pay back on these. Um, yeah, so we um, just, so this um, committee group um, knows, you know, we have asked them to, um, to refund uh, the, uh, the services that did not have the FY modifier because it's required since 2018. So, they, um, so we are um, asking them for the status and we have a meeting with them on Monday. Don't worry, I'm not gonna ask what FY stands for. But it, it's, <laughs> it's a Medicare it's, modifier that they you. came up it's with. It's pretty clear that these modifiers are pretty important and they yeah. cost us uh, hundreds of thousands, if not more dollars, if they're not properly attended to. So thank you for explaining those. 
Yes. They all. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry. Sorry. No, I was just going to say that with, with the modifiers, you know, for all of these claims, they're generally, if it's on the professional side, you have, um, you know, CPT codes, which are procedural codes. And associated with those codes is a reimbursement rate. Um, and so the modifiers modify those claims. And it could and and it could go a, a number of ways, but those modifiers can either increase what you're going to get paid because you're doing more work, or it could decrease what you're going to get paid. Um, but it's just it modifies, you know, how gotcha. how it's going to be reimbursed. Thanks, Matt. Just really quickly, I just following up on uh, Chair Banerjee's comment earlier about what happened before. So we initially had a situation with a number of large pharmaceutical companies where we did, we did not have the UD modifier included, and they said that we, over, uh, we were overpaid. We doubled it. We doubled it. Wow. Uh, and uh, we did end up paying a large substantial amount to each of the uh, pharmaceutical companies. And then more recently, we had the issue with uh, DHCS, uh, with the, the California uh, uh, regulatory body that oversees 340B. And there we had an actual acquisition cost issue and also a UD modifier. So we had, so we had both of those issues. We were able to, we just recently, as uh, Akemi said, we just recently came to terms with them uh, at about 1.5 million. And we had reported this uh, way back when, and we, we, we thought it was a really good deal for us. And there was a there was a danger that it, it could close down the whole thing. So we were pretty happy with uh, where we settled. They let us off very lightly. Um, <laughs> so one thing I was wanted to know is, can you put a financial thing when you do an internal audit and you say like, FY modifiers are missing in this, this could be the risk to us. Like if we over, if we are, have been overpaid, like we might have to return back 6 million, suddenly that bill will come to us. Or if we've underestimated, we've lost, we've just lost 3 million because we, you know, we underbuilt the system. So is it possible to give the dollar amount so people can actually tangibly see what we are, what we are liable for risk-wise? We will be able to do that. Um, it's, and we were trying to get that information before this meeting. It's just that revenue cycle hasn't been able to quantify that yet. So as soon as we get that, we can give an update the next quarter. Sure. Is there any way to get insurance against these modifier events that cost us so much money? Over the insurance? Is that what you're? Yeah, I mean, if what? these things are cause us to lose potentially millions of dollars, is to just trying to think outside the box. Maybe that's a, a revenue model for us is setting up insurance for other hospitals that don't use their modifiers properly. <laughs> well, I think our insurance is going to be that we're going to get this billing and these things right. I think this one is All a, right. like that. I think this um, particular um, FY modifier is, is unique because 
essentially, um, this is using um, computer radiology and not digital. And so Medicare, this is specific to Medicare and that they, you know, essentially want everybody to go digital. And that's why they're, they're saying, okay, but we're gonna reduce the reimbursement, um, you know, uh, from seven, it used to be 7% and now it's 10%. And so they, um, what, if you don't put the modifier on, it means that you receive the full reimbursement. And yeah, I think Trustee, ben, uh, Trustee uh, Friedman basically is saying is what he's seen so far is we've had an issue with the UD modifier. Now we have the FY modifier. I haven't gotten it to it yet, but the TC modifier is coming up. <laughs> I saw that, yeah. yeah so. And so there is an issue with our claims not being built out properly and appending the right modifiers. And so we are definitely working with our revenue cycle team uh, on this. Um, and, and that's why we're auditing these as, as often as we are. Thank you. Sure. The other area that we audited was uh, aged credit balances because there definitely are requirements about you know, the amount of time that we need to take um, at, you know, timely, um, basically timely uh, refunding of these overpayments. And we did find that there were delays in identifying and refunding overpayments. Um, and basically for Medicare, refunds are supposed to be refunded within 60 days or at least them notified that there's one so they could do a recoupment. And for Medi-Cal, it's 30 days. Uh, the remediation here, again, the audit report has been given to re our revenue cycle team uh, and a corrective action plan is pending. But what, what we are, you know, basically asking them to do is really, you know, pay attention to getting these refunds done, um, you know, in a timely manner. The next one um, is the TC modifier, which is the technical component on our hospital radiology claims. And the findings here was that there were claims that went out without that TC modifier for a specific code, and that's, that's the CPT code there. Um, and right now, reports are, are being run, and we're in the stages of beginning the audit on this. And then the last one we had here was related to inpatient admit discharge um, discharges. And there was a concern that revenue cycle brought to us that patients who were being discharged from the ED were being discharged in the inappropriate class that they were in an inpatient status. And there were a hundred claims audited and there were five of those uh, that needed to, to be reviewed. But basically what we found that most of those were, were appropriate because there are times when patients are admitted to the ED and as opposed to it being outpatient, if a physician writes an order for that patient to be inpatient while they're in the ED, they can be changed to an inpatient status. Now, the expectation or what's supposed to happen is they're supposed to receive you know, inpatient services, although they are housed in the emergency department. And most of the times that happens because there are no beds and they can't transfer them you know, onto the unit. So if, if for some reason, say they stay in there 48 hours and they're discharged, well, they were an inpatient. And so that discharge status is appropriate. Um, and so we did take a look at those. Um, but 
Go ahead. Was there a question? I don't think so. Okay. So basically that's where we were on that. And again, uh, we're having that report just reviewed again uh, by revenue cycle. The next slide. So from privacy, um, as far as our reportable breaches, in January, we had one authorized access to a patient's medical record that was reported to CBT, uh, California Department of Public Health and the Office of Civil Rights. Uh, and the plan of correction, the patient's next of kin was notified of the incident and then all other plans of corrections um, are, um, were still in progress on this one. The next slide. And basically our compliance dashboard uh, for the second quarter, uh, as far as new issues, there were a total of 86. Um, 121 cases were closed. There were 114 that were pending resolution and there were two that were reported to a government um, agency. So there were 38 HR cases and they were related basically to employee relations, hostile work environment, harassment, allegations and retaliation. There were 39 privacy incidents and those investigations were around snooping and unauthorized access. Uh, there were some contract reviews and privacy, some research around privacy cases. There were four uh, for compliance, um, and those were conflict of interest, billing issue, and possible Medicare overpayment. Um, three that were listed as risk and safety, quality of care concerns, and patient safety concerns. And then two that uh, we were entered, and that was just related to the IRB uh, projects. And so as you can see, 45% of the cases were privacy related, 44 were HR related. There were five compliance related, four um, risk and safety and two that we had related to the IRB. One of the things going forward, you'll probably see an uptick in these numbers because from our compliance team, there were quite a few things that uh, the team members were working on, but they were not entering into our compliance database. And I've basically, you know, worked with them and asked them to start entering all of those cases so that we can really have a true picture of what we're working on, the type of cases that are coming into our team, um, and so that we can track those and make sure that we're documenting, you know, what we're doing on those. So I think this might help because we, um, being that's from the second quarter, this is actually from the January to February, which is part of the third quarter. Okay. Well, that's right. We did have um, Panya put this in. So you guys could see that there is, if you look at compliance um, for from January 1st through February 28th, as opposed to five cases, we have 19 that are listed here. And so that's some of the work that we have that's ongoing. The next slide, Akemi. And again, this is just talking about some of the different projects that we're involved in. We're on the Medicare Advanced Beneficiary Notice um, team, and that work is going uh, very smoothly. Um, the privacy uh, monitoring, we already spoke about. The IRB manager implementation, we've already spoken about. And then the Bay Area Tumor Institute, we've spoken about that one. 
And this is just a quick update on what the work that's been done with the Medicare Advanced Beneficiary Notice. Um, it's a multidisciplinary team that's working on this project. Um, the EPIC bill is complete. Um, the integrated testing has started. The assessment um, to identify training resources, that's um, being done. And then we have a tentative go live for early June of 2023. And for those of you who may not be familiar with what the Medicare Advanced Beneficiary Notice is, it's basically a requirement that for Medicare patients, if there are services that are not going to be covered, if they're non-covered by Medicare, um, then we have to give the patient a notice in advance um, that they will be uh, responsible for those services. And it also gives them the opportunity to deny the service or the item, you know, if they don't want to pay for it. And so this has been, you know, something that's been in effect for years, but most healthcare systems have struggled with how to actually operationalize this. And so now we're able to build this in Epic and, you know, become compliant with this. And I believe that's it. Yeah, that's it. All right. And I have one last question. Sure. Take it away. Uh, do, uh, looking at the January to February uh, issue types, mm -hmm. uh, fraud, theft, and other things like this is quite, uh, do they come through the hotline? Some of them, come, uh, most of our cases come through the hotline. Well, Quite a few cases come through the hotline, but what I find for compliance, oftentimes those come from managers, you know, people in operations who reach out to us. Okay, that's a good question. Thank you. Yes. A good final question. <laughs> uh, let's see, we have uh, the information written reports. If there's no questions or comments from the trustees, the meeting is adjourned. Thank you, Marilyn, Akimi, and Ejaz for excellent reports and work. Thank See you, you next time. Thank you. Bye. Bye.